0: Well, we just dismissed the elementary kids. I remember my elementary days when the report card would these words over here, like uh, citizenship and deportment. I never could figure out what deportment meant until a couple of trips to the principal's office and a couple of sessions with Dad in the woodshed, and I kind of got the general drift of what it meant. I'm still not sure what citizenship entails, but for our purposes today, citizenship is how we interact with legally constituted civil authority in obedience and to the glory of God. Now, I announced last week that uh, the Sermon on in this series. I'm going to see if I can wiggle my way out of this, see if you are going to buy this All last week, I was preparing for this message today, and I had in my mind, this is the last one, and so when I got up and preached marriage, I thought, well, this is our last in the series of To the Glory of God. How many of you buy that? No, I didn't think so. Anyway, this is the last in the series to the glory of God. I really did a lot of study, and I came up with over a hundred texts that dealt with this topic, and I said, man, we got an elephant here, you, you know, you can only eat an elephant one bite at a time, and we've only got one bite, so I narrowed it down to 16 texts, and uh, it wasn't an elephant, but it was still a moose, so I finally succumbed to basing our comments this morning around one. The classic text on this topic, Romans chapter 13. I invite you to turn there. Romans chapter 13. (coughs) Just the first seven verses. (coughs) Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God... But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, but he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due, custom to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Heavenly Father, I thank you that in your sovereignty and in your wisdom you instituted human government for the good of the whole. And Father, as we think of how Best bring glory to you as it relates to how we relate to our government, to all government. I pray, Heavenly Father, that we will see, even though we are citizens of heaven, we are also citizens here on earth. How it is we are to act, how we are to live our lives, that you may be glorified. And, Father, some of us, uh, myself in particular, Find it difficult at times to submit and to honor at the same time those who are in authority. But I pray, Father, that uh, where we need to be challenged by your Spirit through your Word, I pray that we will be this morning. And I pray that we will be edified in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. (coughs) I'm going to do a little time travel here this morning. We're going to 46 B.C., ancient Egypt. <clears throat> there, as the Israelites rapidly grew, the Pharaoh became anxious that the, there were going to be so many Israelites that if the, a, a war came along, they'd join the enemy and he was afraid of the Israelites. And his solution was to command the midwives to throw all the maybe baby boys to the crocodiles. Well, what do you suppose the midwives did? You read the first two chapters of uh, Exodus and you'll find out. Let's move ahead of about 3,500 years to... that many? Not that many. Anyway, quite a few. To uh, 1860... You're a Christian. Put yourself in the shoes of a Christian in Montgomery, Alabama. You have a moral conflict with slavery. A man named Abraham Lincoln has taken office. You agree with him based upon biblical revelation. But the government where you reside has decided to secede from the Union. What do you do? Do you uh, be obedient to your government? Or do you try to replace it? Or what? Do you, what just what do you do? Which side do you support? And then let's move ahead another 80 years to 1940 Germany. Put yourself in the shoes of a German Christian. You obli- obviously oppose killing innocent people yet by law these people are being exterminated simply because of their ethnicity. What do you do? Do you just keep your mouth shut? Or do you help them? knowing that if you get caught, you'll be put to death? What do you do? Let's uh, put ourselves into the context of today. We live in a day when abortion has been legalized, when marriage has been redefined, when we are now told that there are five genders, not two. When I grew up, there were boys and there were girls. Now there are five genders. Did you know that? The fifth gender is so unspeakable, I won't mention it in public. It's disgusting. It's gross. And worst of all, we are told that you can decide which gender you want to be. You were born a girl? Well, you you don't have to live with that. You're born a boy? You want to be a girl? That's okay. You can change all that. It's your decision. Or if you want to be one of those other genders, you can. You can do that. That's the environment that we live in today. Clearly, we're brought up with all kinds of conflicting choices and issues that we have to face. I was um, <clears throat> in the re- re- the redefinition of mari- redefinition of marriage. Uh, you've probably heard about the couple in uh, Oregon who decided not to bake a wedding cake for the gay couple. Well, uh, Cal Thomas, one of my favorite uh, commentaries, you this and this week's edition of the Clarion. He said, let him eat cake. And he concludes, conservative Christians should... ...in the condemnation business, but in the restoration business. The Christian bakers who... ...might have used their opportunity to tell the gay couple about the God who loves them more than they could ever love each other. That would have been a proper and biblical exercise of their faith and religious freedom under the first... That's what Cal Thomas has to say about it. You might have come up to a different conclusion, I don't know. There are a lot of unspoken questions regarding this whole thing of uh, obedience to government. For example, does God expect blind obedience? Romans 13 says, every soul be subject unto the higher power, higher authority. How might it be salt and light without opposing unjust laws? Good question. In the 1980s, when I lived in Anchorage, mid mid-80s, I picketed abortion clinics, was arrested a couple of times. I came into the teaching of Martin Luther regarding civil disobedience, and he said this: we are to obey until or unless the law is disobedience to God. And so I took a different view about what I was doing. However, at that time, There was a Roman Catholic priest who was a Jesuit, Society of Jesus. He had served in the Alaska Bush for 50 years, back in the 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, and so on, when the Alaska Bush was Bush. He was 87 years old, and he lived at the Pioneer Home in As he stood before the judge and gave his elocution, because he wrote it out, and I saved it, Your Honor, As concerned Christians, we uphold all legitimate legislation and authority. Our problem is with the abortion law, which is illegitimate and contrary to God's law. Before the government can legitimately sanction the killing of a child in the womb, it must be able to prove that the child in the womb is not human. Otherwise, it risks the destruction of human life, which it was created to protect. No such proof is offered. Thus, the abortion law lacks justification." The same is true of trespassing on private property. When necessary to save innocent human life, the right of private property yields to the obligation to save that life when threatened with destruction. To protect the murderer and to punish those who try to prevent the murder is contrary to the purpose of government and makes it unworthy of being. Besides, the abortion law makes the government a tyrant. It favors the selfish parent over the innocent but helpless child. It makes criminals of the upright people who have the courage to prevent the killings in obedience to God's command to love one another. We pray that God will give you the light to see this and to renounce your official position since to keep it will destroy your moral integrity and make you a tool of the nation's corruptors. That was one mighty, older, powerful man who spoke his mind Before the judge, you might not agree with what his conclusions. That's the problem with these issues that we're facing. It's not always black and white. There's a third question, unspoken many times. How does my dual citizenship impact my government? I am, first of all, a citizen of heaven. Philippians 3, 20. We are citizens of heaven first, but we are also play work out. Well, in the early Anabaptists, and we are our roots are Baptist. We are an Anabaptist church. What's an Anabaptist? The word means baptized again. Anna means again. In 17th century Europe. The, the old system, which still is quite uh, intact to this day, was the state and the church merged. They, they were in bed together. The church supported the government, and the government through taxation supported the church. The church became essentially just another dead institution. But at the same time, there were Christians Born again evangelical Christians who were not a part of the state church. They couldn't in conscience be a part of it. And they believed in baptism of believers. Once you became a believer, then it was time to be baptized. So they were baptized. The state church says, Oh, you're baptizing again. You're those Anabaptists. And for many other reasons, they were separatists in every way. They were persecuted unmercifully. Many of these people in the 17th century immigrated to America, and their influence is huge in the framing of the Constitution of the United States. That is our roots. The early Anabaptists chose not to enlist in the armed forces. This is how they responded. They would not serve in law enforcement. They would not serve as civil judges. They would not support capital punishment for good reason. In France, the Huguenots, in less than a year, 40,000 French Huguenot Christians were sent to the guillotine by the Church of Rome and the government of France with the sanctions of France. So obviously, they were against capital punishment. They would not hold elective office. They would not serve on a jury they would not vote for political candidates, and they would not support a strong national defense. That was their, sh- their response then. What is our response now? In most of these instances, it is an individual choice. The questions will never go away, but there is an overriding principle that I think we need to understand above all else. I call it the Peter Principle. When, when Peter and John, I believe it was, were dragged into the their day, he said to them, "Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to obey God, you judge." They let him go. Next chapter, he's back before the the judge, and uh, a fellow by the name of Gamaliel intervened. Otherwise, uh, their punishment would have been far greater. But they decided to just beat him, beat them commanded them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let him go. Well, Peter was commanded to speak in the name of Jesus and he obeyed God rather than man. And that is the principle. When we are up against it, God or government, the choice is clear. We obey God. I want to read for you what uh, Charles Ryrie wrote with this regard. He is a professor or was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. He said, When civil law and God's law are in opposition, the illustrations of the Bible sanction, if not obligate, the believer to protest or disobey. But when a believer feels he should disobey his government, he must be sure it is not because the government has denied him his rights, but because it has denied him God's rights. And then Ed Rowe, executive director of Christians Concern, wrote this account. Bible-believing Christians justified the reign of Adolf Hitler on the basis of Romans 13. And on that basis, went on to cooperate with and fight for the triumph of his murderous regime. There was a pastor during those years by the name of Martin Niemöller, who preached the gospel faithfully and courageously until he was imprisoned in a concentration camp. Another minister who reneged on his calling stayed silent. This minister visited Pastor Naimüller one day and remarked that if he would keep his mouth shut on certain subjects and respect the government, he would be a free man. And so continued the visitor. Why are you still in jail, Naimüller? Mueller replied, Naimüller. Why aren't you? In short. Principle does not give us liberty to disobey civil authority because we think it is being heavy handed or unfair. It does, however, give us an obligation to disobey when it requires disobedience to God's higher law. Now, one more thing I want to say before we really dig in to our text this morning. God planned the world. <clears throat> then God created the world. As I speak, God is preserving the world. And this is the part I want us to get. God is also providentially directing the world and its history to a predetermined goal, and that goal is the return of Jesus Christ and the establishment of his eternal kingdom. When Paul wrote Romans 13, Nero was the Caesar. What I want to point out here is that God has a long-term, greater objective than any current government or governments might encompass. God ordains Nero's. God ordains George Bush's and Barack Obama's and many others whom we may or may not question God's wisdom. How many times do we... God would put George Bush in office? you got to be kidding me. Barack Obama? No way! God wouldn't do that to us. There's the problem. We're thinking about us. Not God's. Our focus is usually pretty limited to how politicians affect us personally or how their policies line up with our political philosophy. What we often forget is that God has a much larger agenda and that his purposes may be best served by a Nero, a Stalin, a Hitler, or a Bush, or Obama. God's far bigger in his purposes than our... In Daniel chapter 2, the prophet Daniel is interpreting the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the most complete world dictator who ever lived, the most, uh, the supreme world, world government that ever was. And the image that God showed, showed him was a head of gold, which represented Babylon, the first world empire. Then the, the arms and chest were silver, which represented Greece the second world-dominated government. And then the, the uh, waist and thighs was of bronze representing uh, Medo, Medo-Persia. Maybe I had those two backwards. I forget, yeah, I had those two backwards. And then the legs were of iron and represented Rome. And the Roman Empire then just kind of disintegrated into iron and clay at, at the feet, And in the dream, a stone cut out of a mountain without hands comes and smashes not only the feet, but the whole representation of human government. And here's what Daniel says in verse 44 of Daniel 2. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Inasmuch as you saw the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, and the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. God is focusing human history to a predetermined end, and that end is going to be the return of Jesus Christ and all government will be put down. In, in Psalm chapter 2, it speaks the nations, the governments uh, cry out, they want to tear the bands, the restraints of God from them. And in the end, it says, The Lord's righteous servant, that's not what it calls him there, but it's referring to Jesus, and it says, My son will dash them with a rod of iron. And it's all human government. While it was instituted by God, it nonetheless is manned by man. Sinful man. And there is coming a day when all human government will be put down. And the, the, the Prince of Peace, the Lord Jesus Christ, will establish a righteous rule here on planet Earth, a kingdom that will last forever. And I just want to point out, Psalm 2 does not say all human government except the United States. When the Lord comes back, the United States will be in rebellion just as much as any of the other nations. And I personally believe we are living in the context of the last days. The ten toes that, the, the, that are described in um, Daniel 2 and elsewhere in the book of Revelation, the, the number ten of nations or groups of nations that will come together in the last days, to form the last day world empire from which the Antichrist will rise and then uh, command. Uh, I don't know, you know, I don't know if this is a forerunner of anything. But the G8 summit in Pittsburgh in 2008 put the year 2018 as their goal to replace the dollar, and to institute 10 currencies for 10 economic zones or regions in the world. Why 10? I don't know. Is that what the Bible was talking about? Maybe. Probably not. But I do think the globalization that we see, the mad dash to be one, I believe is a precursor of what is coming. I could point to a lot of other things, but I'd get into speculation. We save that for our... So, to Romans 13. What is God saying? In Romans 13, God is addressing the issue... Of a potentially rebellious citizen, not a rebellious government. If you miss that, you will run amok in understanding our text today. And I just tell you right up front the primary principle in this text is that a good Christian is a good citizen, not a lawless one. A good Christian keeps the law of the land. He doesn't run red lights. He doesn't purposely overpark. He doesn't evade income tax and he may, maintains the speed limit. You've heard it said perhaps that the last part of a Christian to get saved is his right foot. That's often true. A Christian will respect and obey an officer of the law as the hand of God. He will look upon a judge as the finger of God moving under God's authority. The point I'm making is that Christians in communist China don't run red lights either, and they pay their taxes, even though they may not want to, even may, though it may not seem fair. That's not the point. God said, We are to obey. So there is a divine mandate of civil government. The authorities that exist are appointed by God, and the authorities to exercise. In John 19, Jesus said to Pilate, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Now there is a great example, God ordaining Pilate of all people, but he had a greater purpose, and that was the coming of Jesus To the cross, so that you and I's redemption could be possible. It might not have looked real great at the time, but God had a purpose in it. That's what I'm trying to communicate here. In Jeremiah chapter 20, God refers to Nebuchadnezzar. This pagan king is going to be used by God. To bring discipline upon the rebellious prostate Israelites and take them into captivity. He was the one dude that had the power to do it. Later on, God had a come to Jesus meeting with Nebuchadnezzar and he figured out that God's in charge. God establishes human government and removes human government according to his sovereign plan and purpose. But God's revealed purpose. For all government, as revealed in Romans 13, reveals three responsibilities. To prevent, human, to prevent human evil, to promote human well-being, and to protect human life. And I'm not going to cover this, but it's, it's not to our point. But it's implied to provide national defense. So first of all, to prevent human evil. Rulers are not a terror to good works. They are an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. And we see this reflected, this, the biblical foundation in our civil, civil government in the preamble. To establish justice and to ensure domestic tranquility. The alternative to civil government is what we see in the book of Judges where every man did that which was right in his own eyes and it was chaos and anarchy. And after about 250 years of that, the Israelis said, enough. We want a king. Now, they did have a mixed motive. But that was their solution to everybody doing what is right in their own eyes. We need some government here. So, first of all, government is to establish justice and restrain human evil. And those who serve in doing so are doing so to promote human well-being. For he, now this might be the bureaucrat, this might be the police officer, it might be Al Clinton. You work for the state, don't you? We'll forgive you. <laughs> no? Uh, let me punch ahead here. He's what we call a public servant. And I, for one, appreciate Alan Clinton and what he does. I told him about a pothole up by Kenai. Next day, it was taken care of. I got clout, or Al- Alan <laughs> Alan's responsive. I don't. You did have something to do with that, didn't you? Yeah, you may have mentioned it. I know how that goes. Okay, anyway... For he is God's minister. The word there is diakonos, the same word that's translated deacon in in other texts of our scripture. A deacon is somebody who is charged with specific responsibilities to serve the well-being of others on the behalf of others who are responsible for the overall well-being. And it means to serve. The second word here is i. liturgoi, from which we get the word liturgy. It is the same word used in the New Testament to describe the Old Testament priests and their ministry in the temple. The Old Testament priests, while serving, never sat down. Never. No chairs in the temple. It was a tireless service and I might add it was underappreciated. Here, this meaning of this word is reflected in the phrase, attending continually. We call them, therefore, public servants. Third, to protect human life. For he, the government authority, does not bear the sword in vain. Our Declaration of Independence said that the first priority was the protection of life. The first institution God ordained was the family in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Seven chapters later, the second institution that God ordained was human government. And the reason given for establishing human government was, was to protect human life. So I want to take you through a brief review of human history soon after in the beginning. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 15, we read the account of Cain killing Abel. And then the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be upon him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. We're not told precisely what that vengeance was, but God was to be the enforcer. Reading on in chapter 4, verse 23, we run into a guy named Lamech. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, wives of Lamech. Listen to my speech, for I have killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventy-sevenfold. See the progression here. Lamech takes a hand in exacting vengeance and kills someone because he was wounded. He escalates the consequence and claims the right to get even 77 times or 77 fold. I got a right not only to kill the guy that offended me a little bit, but I can kill his aunts and uncles and cousins and grandpa and grandma and friends. I can cover the whole works. By chapter 6 of Genesis, this, take matters into my own hands, thinking, escalated to what we read in verses 11 and 12 and 13 of Genesis 6. The earth was also corrupt before God. The earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence through them. What does God do in order to protect the human race and for other reasons? God pushed the reset button and brought a flood. That's Genesis 7 and 8. God brought a universal flood which put an end to the corrupted and violent human population with the exception of Noah and his family. Okay. The danger was unrestrained revenge would would totally wipe out the population. God brought a flood and he to deliver from unrestrained vengeance, God instituted two things. Capital punishment to be enforced by human government. God's means of restraining the wanton taking of human life, capital punishment exercised not by God, but by human government. And the reason given for this extreme measure was not just to, pre, per, to preserve the human race, but because of the sanctity of human life which was created in the image of God. And we'll, well, I'll read that right now. Romans 9, verse 5. Surely for your life, this is after... Noah gets out of the boat. God says, Surely for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it, and from the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Why? Because man was created in the image of God. God's human life is sacred because it's created in the image of God. And that is why God instituted Capital punishment, there to be, I understand that, to be carried out by human government. Now, capital punishment is implied in Romans 13 and elsewhere in the New Testament. I am not going to open that can of worms here this morning because I know we'll we'll all disagree on that issue. But nonetheless, it was instituted by God after the flood Uh, after Noah. But I do think the Old Testament, particularly the law of Moses, helps us in our understanding of this whole issue. In the Old Testament, the law of Moses instituted the law of lex talionis. That law is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth only. Contrary to popular belief, the law of lex talionis was codified in the Law of Moses to prevent vengeance, not to sanction it. It was given as a guideline for the judges of Israel and was the founding principle of jurisprudence at the founding of America. I have often heard people say that the Old Testament contradicts the New Testament, and every time they say this, they refer to this. The Old Testament was an eye for an eye, and now Jesus says turn the other cheek. Well, in the Old Testament, coming from the environment of the day, the law of lex talionis was the restraint needed to stop the vengeance-taking. But in that law, there was also grace. Let me explain. The law of Moses lists 16 capital crimes. Premeditated murder. Kidnapping, adultery. What if everyone who was put to death because of adultery were put to death? There'd probably be a whole lot of us here not here if that were true, especially after Jesus gave explanatory explanatory commentary on the Ten Commandments and said to look at a woman and to lust upon her is to commit adultery. Or for a woman to look upon a man and to lust is adultery. With that definition, as Je- Jesus defined the Ten Commandments, it'd be a pretty slim crowd here today, wouldn't there? Incest, homosexuality, Bestiality. I like this one. I probably wouldn't be here. (laughs) Striking or cursing parents. Offering human sacrifice. False prophecy. Blasphemy. Profaning the Sabbath. Sacrificing to false occult practices, unchastity, rape of a betrothed virgin. You know, say what you want, when capital punishment is a real threat, it does restrain crime. All the fancy whatevers that say, oh, no, it doesn't, oh, yes, it does. I lived for a few months in the nation of Jordan. Over there in Jordan, if you're convicted of rape without appeal, it's off with your head. How long do you suppose it's been since there's been a rape in, in Jordan? It's been decades it does restrain now here is the grace part as best as i can determine a substitute or ransom payment a sacrifice was possible instead of the death penalty in every case except premeditated murder numbers 3531 says you shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. So what was the point of all of these capital crimes? Quite simply, to point out how far short we all fail, fall, and how much each and every one of us are deserving of the fires of hell, of death, separation from God forever. We we, we all earned, the wages of sin is death, and we deserve it. We earned it fair and square. That's what the law teaches. The holiness of God is absolute, and we all fall short, and most of us deserve to be put to death prematurely through capital punishment. Now, what's the point of all of that? The law was our tutor to show us our need of a Savior to bring us to Christ for help. Galatians chapter 3 makes that real clear. You look at the Old Testament law, and it says you need help. And the Old Testament law pictured the sacrifices which were a picture of Jesus, who came and gave his life that we might be forgiven and freed from the consequences that we justly deserved and earned. So much for the divine mandate, the decreed maintenance of civil government. If we're going to have civil government, we've got to maintain it. And the text says, for because of this, this what? The rule of law. Because of the rule of law, the need to maintain government, two things are necessary. Government needs the right to legislate force. And you see the words judgment, terror, sword, avenge. A law without a penalty is merely good advice. Without the right of enforcement of law, there would be no law in reality. And I just want to say as kind of a PS here, we are unique in America, not only to have checks and balances in our form of government, But we also have recourse to jury trial, appeal, and litigation. Romans 13 was written to people of whom the majority were slaves with absolutely no appeal, no rights, no trials, no nothing. Pardon the bad grammar. Now here's the part you might not want to hear. The right to levy tax. For because of this you pay tax. In almost every church I have been associated with, there's been at least one tax protester who is saying the income tax is not constitutionally valid. And they protest and end up going to jail. It technically may not be constitutional, but government does have the right to tax. And one way or another, sooner or later, you will pay tax. It's, gonna, it's inevitable. In this regard, I came across a letter written a few years back to the IRS. It says this, Gentlemen, enclosed, you will find a check for $150. I cheated on my income tax last year, and I have not been able to sleep ever since. If I still have trouble sleeping, I will send you the rest. And that naturally then brings us to the third, the defined motive to obey civil government. This is real short, but very, very important. Eternally, we have a sovereign command. God said so. That should settle it, right? God said so. Externally, if you don't, there is a severe consequence. It's not only right, it's smart. And internally, a sincere conscience. It makes for good sleep. And God is glorified. Pretty simple, isn't it? I want to end with this. As a citizen here and there, God is glorified when... I accept civil government as God's sovereign design for my good. God is glorified when I obey civil authority until or unless it requires my disobedience to God's higher authority. God is glorified when I honor civil authorities and pray for all those who are in authority. God is glorified when I clearly distinguish between what is Caesar's and what is God's. You Remember, Jesus said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And finally, God is glorified when I pay my taxes on or before the 15th of April. I was doing okay in this sermon until I added that last word, huh? Joyfully, let's pray. Father, thank you so very much for the incredible privilege of growing up in the United States. We can't begin to understand how blessed we are to be citizens of these United States. But Father, the far, far, far greater privilege is to be a citizen of heaven. Having Jesus Christ, despotes, our supreme and final and ultimate authority in all things, may we, Father, bow the knees of our hearts to Jesus, knowing that he is God in human flesh, the one before whom we will one day stand in judgment. May we live in awe of Jesus while being able to live knowing him as friend and Savior. I pray, Father, that we will understand that the only appropriate response to a superior is obedience. And that's why Jesus said, if you love me, you truly love me, keep my commandments, do what I say. And that includes honoring and obeying civil government until or unless. Discipline our lives as citizens of Soldat Akinai of Alaska, of the United States of America, to the glory of God. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.